This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. So the birds need to go right onto the rim of the bin, and then they need to lift the bin at the handle. They usually do this with their foot, and then they need to transfer it to their mouth, and then they sort of shuffle down the side of the bin um, until they get to that point where they can push it over so it opens up. And probably because it's so physically challenging, they're also very good at targeting what bin to open. So over 90% of the observations of both us and um, the citizen scientists that we recruited to watch out for the behaviour reported that it was on the red-lidded bins, which in Sydney are the general waste bins. So they completely ignore the recycling bins (laughs) and go straight for the bins that they know will have food in it. That's Lucy Applin describing the way that some enterprising cockatoos were using to get a meal. But this is much more than a fun fact about clever cockatoos in a suburb of Sydney, Australia. Because within a couple of years, this elaborate foraging method had been taken up by cockatoos in much of the rest of the city. It's a wonderful demonstration of a culture developing in creatures other than us. This is really interesting to talk to you about this subject, Lucy, because we often don't think of other animals as having culture. In fact, we say when we find some that seem to really have culture, we say, oh, look, they have culture just like us, when in fact they had it before we had it, (laughs) probably, right? Yeah. I mean, of course, there's nothing like human culture, but I think there's been two decades of, of really good research now, starting with chimpanzees, of course, showing that Yes, other animals do have culture, and it's much more widespread than we might have thought, all the way from birds to whales. So what what do you mean by culture in other animals? We have a wide range of things we call culture, I think. Mm. In the other animals, what generally are you talking about when you say culture? Well, we try to define culture very functionally because, of course, we can't ask an animal <laughs> how it feels if it has a fashion or... Um, So we define it by what we can see in terms of behavior. So we very broadly say culture is something where a behavior that's uh, a skill or a knowledge that's socially learnt, which means just learnt from observing another animal and um, shared in a group or population and persists over time. So those are our sort of three tenets of culture that it's learnt by observation of another animal that it's shared in a group and that it persists over generations. So it's very, very broad. Interesting that it persists over generations. Mm -hmm. And that's because each new generation observes the way it's done in the earlier generation? Exactly. And this is why culture is so exciting, because it's actually an alternative inheritance system to genetic inheritance. It means that knowledge and skills can be passed down over generations and potentially shaped by each generation so that an experience an animal has now might be partly influenced by the learning that went on multiple generations ago, just like in humans. Right. I get the impression that until a recent time, 
we just took it for granted that other animals didn't have anything like what we call culture. When, when did that first start to pop up in our understanding of other animals? Well, it really, we had some early observations of Japanese macaques, a classic example in the 50s. They were suggestion of what they called proto-culture. But really, our current understanding of culture, we can date to the late 90s when um, chimpanzee researchers, Jane Goodall, uh, Christoph Bosch, Andrew Whiten, were working in different populations around Africa and observing these behavioral repertoires, usually tools, but also other behaviors as well, and started to realize that the behaviors that were expressed in different populations were often different. Sometimes behaviors like, say, nutcracking in one population didn't exist in another population at all. Mm. And by talking to each other, these researchers were able to build a list in a what's a very famous paper now that was published in 1999 in Nature. They published a list of all the behaviours they observed in the different populations that had no clear genetic or ecological, so an environmental uh, correlate. And they suggested that this was basically culture by what's called the method of exclusion. They couldn't find any other clear explanation for why these behaviours differed between different areas. And since then, the field has really taken off and expanded beyond primates, but it really started in chimpanzees. I love it that through their social action of talking with one another, mm. they figured out how these animals were transferring behaviours. Exactly through social interaction. I mean, it was discovered by the same thing that they were discovering. The macaques, that was the first glimmer. And that was that the, um, the introduction by presumably one genius macaque who started washing his food before he ate it? Exactly. You know the, uh, you know the work. Uh, yes. So this was the observation that um, these macaques, which were being Japanese macaques, were being given sweet potatoes to eat by tourists, um, that one started to wash its sweet potato in the sea before eating it, maybe to get the sand off, maybe because it was nice when it was salty. Um, but th this behaviour then spread through the population over quite a long time. I think it was years before it really spread. And the researchers thought, well, this has to be something like the spread of an innovation, something like what mm. we call culture. You know, you mentioned chimps. I saw a baby chimp learning to eat termites by sticking a, a little twig into a tree, but learned to do it just by observing the mother. And there was no effort on the mother's part to say, don't, don't use this, the twig like that, use it like this. There was no teaching going on at all. She was ignoring the baby, but the baby saw what she was doing and learned that way. Is that the way you and other investigators have found that the behavior changes only through observation, or is there ever any teaching like what we do? Yeah, this is a really common misconception I get a lot. People will say to me, oh, so the birds teach each other. No, we have no evidence for teaching. The evidence for teaching in other animals is much more restricted than the evidence for culture. So there are a few species, meerkats are one, where there is good evidence that parents will teach their offspring how to hunt or mm. other behaviours. 
But in most species, it's really just observation. And you get this transmission from generation to generation, often from mother to offspring, just because they allow the offspring close tolerance. And maybe the offspring will interact with the tools after the mother's finished, or maybe they'll investigate the termite mound, like exactly like you saw. But actually, when we look at human evolution, um, there's still societies today where uh, anthropologists argue that there's not much teaching either, that most learning occurs through this close observation, you know, come mm. sit with me and you can watch what I do and yeah. then gradually you'll learn what I do. So, yes, not much evidence for teaching out there. I'm stepping back from my conversation with Lucy Applin for a second to prepare listeners who don't live in Britain that the bird Lucy is going to talk about has a name that's completely unremarkable over there. But in other cultures, it might raise an eyebrow. The bird, which is a relative of chickadees in the U.S., is called a great tit. I'll let Lucy take it from there. I knew about this old story of the tits uh, stealing cream from milk bottles that were left on doorsteps and how this had apparently spread throughout the south of England back in the 1920s. These were old when when milk was delivered by the bottle to your door. And as I remember the story, there was an inch or two of cream at the top of the bottle. Yes, exactly. And a foil top. Just a foil top. So, so one, some bird figured out one great tit. I think that's that's the official name. One figured out how to get the the lid off, and then others observed. Is that the way it went? Well, we don't really know. That's the thing. So, it was sort of an early example of citizen science. The uh, researchers Fisher and Hind asked people to send them uh, mail in reports of when they saw it <laughs> and they used this to uh, plot the distribution and they could show that it was geographically growing where people had reported this behavior but this is indirect evidence of course it certainly seems like there was mm. some social transmission of um, this behavior and maybe a genius tit out there we don't know but um, yeah I thought this was basically needed to be experimentally tested, and I had the system where I could test it. And I already knew from a long history of research in this species that they're very opportunistic. They're very good at learning in general. They're very what we call neophilic. So if there's something new, they'll go and give it a go. They'll go and investigate. Mm. Neophilic. Never heard neophilic before. like that. So you were able to sort of create an innovator, and put it back in the population. Is that is that what you did? That's exactly right. So I created a new foraging resource. It wasn't milk bottles. It was a uh, bird feeder with worms in it where there was a door in front of it that had to be opened by the birds. So a, a new technique to get into this new resource. And then I took birds into captivity from um, the wild and I trained them on how to open this door. And I put the birds back out from where I caught them and I put these puzzle boxes, I call them, this foraging resource around each of the populations and basically held my breath and hoped that <laughs> they remembered what to do and that others would learn. <laughs> so what? how did they get the door open to get the food? 
So what, 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 in other words, what was the innovation that you were introducing into the population? Well, it was two parts. So first it was knowledge that there was food in this box uh, at all. <laughs> yeah. It was an opaque box. You'd never know it was a bird feeder. Um, and then the second part was that the door was actually a sliding door. So they had to peck from the side and slide the door across to get access to the feeder. And the really important part of the experimental design was that the door could be slid left or right. So I knew that if I trained a bird to slide the door to the right and um, the birds in that population also did that, then that's evidence they must be socially learning. They must be learning by observation because otherwise we should see a 50-50 split of left or right. There's no actual difference between the two options. So the way information spreads through great-tit societies is that it starts off initially slow because there's not many animals who know the information. And then as the number of knowledgeable animals is similar to the number of naive animals, you actually get exponential growth. That's the point. It spreads fastest. And then it will plateau off at the point where everybody who can learn has learned in our population, that was about 80%. So you get these really nice S-shaped curves and they match incredibly well to the spread of technology through human societies. We, it seems like the same underlying principles are you know, common to both. Now, you also did an experiment to see if strangers coming into a group changed the way the new behavior was taken up, right? It seems like it does. So we couldn't test this in the wild, but we tested this in an experiment in captivity because it's very hard to manipulate social structure in the wild, as you can imagine. You don't want to go around um, moving birds or culling birds to do that. So we tested this by having um, replicate subpopulations in large outdoor aviaries, so birds we caught from the wild, and we brought them in and we established a group. And then what we did after the group had established and after they had learned um, this new behaviour, we brought birds in and we actually swapped birds out. So we released some birds and we brought some birds in that were completely naive. And in this experiment, the difference to the previous ones I've done is I actually made an inefficient and efficient solution. So the door was basically off-centre. So you had to push it further in one direction mm. than in the other direction to get to the food. So both solutions are good, but one is better than mm. the other because it's faster. And uh, what we found was that if you had populations with new birds coming in, this sort of turnover effect, they were much faster to switch to the more efficient behaviour than static populations. In fact, static populations didn't switch at all. They got completely stuck on this more inefficient version of the tradition. And the reason why is not because new birds were bringing in innovations. Actually, the old birds were occasionally innovating the more efficient solution. They just wouldn't switch. They got stuck at the population level in this tradition. They knew what they were doing. Maybe they had formed a habit. Maybe they were a bit conservative. Um, maybe they were conformist. But the new birds coming in didn't seem to have any of these problems. They could um, observe what was happening and sample the behavioral space and prefer the more efficient solution. 
And then once you had enough of these new birds in the population, actually the old birds tended to switch to um, to change as well. So it's a really dramatic effect that showed the importance actually of immigration on um, on cultural innovation and evolution, really. Immigration and diversity. Yeah. So in this case, it didn't seem to matter exactly who they were. The important thing was that they were new, that they hadn't gained experience and practice. They were coming in with a, a fresh mind, if we can talk about right. that with right. birds. So there was a case where to crack the conformist problem, you had to bring in uh, birds that were much more open and not, not under the sway of the conformity <laughs> that the other birds were. Exactly. And they were also, they hadn't built their own experience. So the more you do something, the better you get at it, and the less likely you are to want to try something different. Mm. And it's completely understandable the same thing happens with birds. But these new birds didn't have any of that baggage. They were able to sample the space again, try new things. There's something I wanted to ask you about the spread of a, of a, a novel behavior. There's... Um, there's a video on the internet that's kind of popular that claims that it's not the innovator, the first person to do a new behavior that matters as much as the second person who picks it up. And after that, there's more of a chance that somebody else in the group will follow along and then another person, and then pretty soon it gets exponential. But if only one does it and nobody else copies it, it tends to lay there. Now, is that just a fanciful guess, or is there any evidence about that? This is, a, I think, a very well-understood principle in economics and advertising. <laughs> it's, the, it's the influences that are important, and it's also those early adopters who uh, pick it up that are the ones you need to target. Um, there's actually some evidence from primates, from non-human primates, that the most innovative individuals tend to be the young and low in the dominance hierarchy, sometimes the ones that are moved, but those aren't the ones who get copied. And it seems like this is something that actually stops the spread of new innovations in primate societies, that uh, they're not paying any attention to these subdominant um, <laughs> young animals. <laughs> this isn't something that we see in, in our birds, but it's quite a... It's this prestige bias which um, and this mismatch between who the innovator is and who are the ones that actually are copied um, can lead to this to this uh, lack of spread of innovation in some animals. Do some animals have a greater capacity to to participate in the spread of a behavior of, of a cultural artifact than others? Or, or does it just require different methods of studying them? Or how, how would you approach that question? So the spread of innovation is this really kind of tight interplay between the social system and the cognition. So you need both factors. If you have a social system that allows information to transfer, exactly like I described in our birds where it's very open and individuals move between groups, then you have perfect conditions for the spread of information. But alongside that, you need to be able to learn and copy mm -hmm. 
and um, be able to remember the behavior, of course. So we have this sort of interplay between the two. And then in addition to that, it's what sort of information you're interested in. So when I was doing this experiment, looking at the spread of a new foraging resource in tits, this is quite a simple behavior that they can learn from just a few observations. But imagine this was a complicated multiple step behavior. For example, maybe um, termite fishing with a stick in primates. Mm -hmm. It's much more hard, much more difficult to learn. Actually, that sort of society might not be the perfect condition for learning. Maybe what you need in that case is more stable groups uh, where you have the opportunity to interact multiple times so that you can slowly learn the behavior over a long period of time. So maybe for that sort of behavior, what you actually need is long juvenile periods and tolerant parents mm. so that you can transmit the behavior um, yeah, so that you've got the opportunity to learn. So it's really this sort of interplay between these two factors. When we come back from our break, Lucy Applin tells me how her insights into how birds spread the knowledge of opening a puzzle box led to a groundbreaking study of how cockatoos shared the trick of raiding garbage bins in Sydney, Australia. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Lucy Applin. You did some interesting work with cockatoos that sounded to me like it was an extension of the, the study on tits opening milk bottles because it was involved getting food by opening something that was not easy to open. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, so this was um, work done by myself in collaboration with scientists in Sydney, Australia, and um, postdoc in my lab, Barbara Klump. And we started studying cockatoos in Sydney where they're native, but they're very uh, well adapted to the urban environment because we wanted to understand whether this spread of innovation and cultural inheritance of behavior could help explain why a species like this, which is a large, slow-breeding, long-lived parrot, could adapt so well to an environment that's so different to the one that they evolved in. So we went to Sydney and we started looking for examples of um, innovations and if we could see any, we wanted to try and understand how they um, might have arisen and if there was any evidence for social learning. And we got very lucky that pretty much as soon as I started working on them, um, this innovation 
was first observed in the south of Sydney. And this is where the cockatoos actually lift the bin lids of um, your standard, we call them in Australia, wheelie bins, household bins that you put on the curb on bin collection day. And they will rifle through these bins looking for food scraps. Bread is their favourite, but they'll take anything. So this was first observed in 2016 or thereabouts, um, right down the south of Sydney. But bins and cockatoos are common throughout the whole, almost the whole of Australia. So we knew that this was unlikely to be just something that the birds could individually learn. It was more likely that a bird had innovated this and it was starting to spread at this specific geographic location. And what did the bird have to do to get the food? Yeah, so it's very tempting to think of it as a grown-up version of the milk bottle <laughs> um, innovation, but it's actually quite complicated. So when Barbara started to analyse videos of the birds opening bins, she was able to show that it's a behaviour that requires five steps. So the birds need to go right onto the rim of the bin and then they need to lift the bin at the handle. They usually do this with their foot and then they need to transfer it to their mouth, and then they sort of shuffle down the side of the bin um, until they get to that point where they can push it over so it opens up. It seems to be quite physically challenging um, for the birds, but obviously the reward is worth it. And probably because it's so physically challenging, they're also very good at targeting what bin to open. So over 90% of the observations of both us and um, the citizen scientists that we recruited to watch out for the behaviour uh, reported that it was on the red-lidded bins, which in Sydney are the general waste bins. So they completely ignore the recycling bins <laughs> and go straight for the bins that they know will have food in it. And th that's interesting because that sounds like something they'd have to learn after they master the five steps of getting the lid open, to, to know the one that they're constantly working on and getting food from is the red one? Or do they yeah, just observe I mean, other birds only go for the red? I think they probably observe other birds only go for the red. We haven't unfortunately been able to follow one bird as it learned very yeah. closely because COVID interrupted our study right in the middle. But we can say that it seems like in one area we studied it, it takes months for the birds to fully master this behaviour. You see lots of birds that try and fail to open lids at different stages. They seem to be able to fail all the way up to the final stage. So it's a really complicated um, innovation that they've learned. So I'm thinking of the process of observing. I'm a bird observing another bird who's halfway through the process of getting it right, but never gets the lid fully open. I'm wondering if I'm learning something from that. That's a fascinating question. We haven't been able to look at that. We've looked at, we have good evidence that they're socially learning it. We've always assumed that's from the successful ones, but maybe they also get information from watching the, the failures. <laughs> so you started seeing them adopt this new way of getting food by opening the bin in Sydney, right, or south of Sydney? And then did you see it spread from there very quickly or was it slow or what, what happened after that? Well, we knew it was happening in this um, small town south of Sydney 
And so what we did was we started a citizen science program where we basically um, advertised an annual survey. And over two years, we asked people to report if they had ever heard of this and if they had seen it, when did they last see it, where did they see it? And through that, we were able to track its geographic spread from observations in only three suburbs to 42 suburbs by the end of the second year. So it depends how fast you call that spread. I think it's a pretty fast spread in in anybody's terms. Uh, right. And I'm also interested in the spread of citizen scientists picking up the challenge. Did that have a nice <laughs> S-curve too, the same way the uh, the birds did? <laughs> Well, we were very lucky that people tend to have strong feelings about cockatoos, as you might imagine, if you've got a <laughs> parrot that large uh, screaming and chewing on your balcony. But in general, people in Sydney tend to really like them. They're big, charismatic birds. They're local, you know, iconic flora and fauna for Australia. And so, yeah, people were actually really enthusiastic to tell us about what they had seen a cockatoo do. Sometimes they wanted to tell us at length, but we were always happy to hear. <laughs> did you see it spread geographically in a way that was similar to how the birds were spreading their new behavior? Yes. So we could see it spreading sort of radially out from these places that we thought were likely to be the source of innovation. Um in this case, we couldn't, because we're looking at a much larger scale, we couldn't say that this individual bird had learned and this individual bird had learned. But we know something about the dispersal distances, so how far cockatoos tend to move, and we knew it had spread further than that. So we're looking at sort of between subpopulations spread. So it's really on a larger scale, actually, maybe more comparable to the milk bottle innovation, actually, and that yeah. is actually spreading between areas now. I was asking a more simple-minded question. Was the spread among citizen scientists geographically similar in any way to how oh. the <laughs> behavior was spreading um, in cockatoos? Well, no, I don't think so. Um, I hope not, or that would have biased our results to some extent. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what we wanted was a very unbiased sample of citizen science reporting so we could say that it was the change of behaviour in the cockatoos, not on the people. However, what I can say is that um, we're just now starting to analyse some new results. So we started when we went out last time to see people protecting their bins and of course, it's very annoying. I mean, people kind of think it's a bit of a joke, but it's still very annoying when a parrot pulls out your garbage and throws it on the street, you know. Um, so people have started to try and come up with creative ways to protect their bins from cockatoo attack. For example, just putting a big rock on top of your bin. <laughs> and um, we have seen, we're just starting to analyse the results now. We, we started to ask people an additional question of, well, do you protect your bin and, and what do you do if you do? And and that we're seeing following the spread of cockatoos. It seems that the people, are, you know, as the cockatoos start to take up the behaviour a couple of years later, the people are yeah, a bit slow on the uptake, but now they're starting to respond to it and protect their bins. So it's an arms race. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it's, kind, it's an arms race of some kind. What would be amazing is if it's a cultural arms race, but we don't know that. We need to yeah. study 
the part of the birds. And we do know they can defeat some protection measures. So in some oh. areas we've seen birds push rocks off bins before <laughs> opening the bin up. It's a cognitive arms race. Exactly. <laughs> you will merge triumphant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is all ongoing. So we're, you know, tracking it monthly now to right. see what yeah. happens. And you have an article, uh, a paper published in Science, That is that right? Um, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. So um, in this, we talk about the bin opening um, behavior and we actually do uh, a three-level analysis. So there's the one I just described where we look at the, um, we use reports from citizen scientists to ask about the geographic patterns and show that it's likely to be spread of innovation. And then we actually go in and take um, detailed observations of birds opening bins in different areas of the range in which they do it. And from this, we saw that not only is the behaviour spreading and is establishing as a new culture, but that different areas are starting to diverge into their own sort of subcultural variants of it. So cockatoos in different areas open bins in slightly different ways now, which is really exciting because we have observed cultural patterns, for example, on the say, the chimpanzees on, on large scales where we know that the cultures differ between one population in one forest and another forest. But what's been harder to show is how that, how that first emerged. Why are there different subcultures in different areas? Um, why, doesn't, why don't all chimpanzees have the same culture? And that's very hard to study in that sort of system. But here it seems like we have the beginning of a new culture and also we're starting to see it diverge into different local subcultures as well. So we're really catching it that at the sort of right at the oh, start. Oh, that's very exciting, watching it as it happens. Yes. That's so great. It's really exciting. I look forward to reading that paper. We, we have to go now, but before we go, we always end our show with seven quick questions roughly related to science. Are you, are you game? Sure, let's go for it. <laughs> Can you remember what the first thing was in your life that you were curious about? Hmm. I can remember being obsessed by birds from as long as <laughs> <laughs> I knew what a bird yeah. was. So I guess it would be count? surprising if that wasn't it. I lived opposite an internationally renowned wetland, and so I was incredibly uh, lucky that from a young age I could go over and look at migrant birds from all over the world. I don't know how oh. I would avoid getting sucked in. And you never <laughs> stopped being curious about that. <laughs> what made you want to be a scientist? Um, apart from a general obsession with animals. Uh, yeah. I have always, well, both my parents are scientists, so I suppose you could say I've been uh, raised in the craft. But I would say what made me want to study animal behaviour um, is the idea that other animals are as close as we can get to aliens on planet Earth. I just mm -hmm. would always love the idea of watching animals and thinking that, you know, something completely different is going on in their mind that's completely separate to my world. They're seeing the world completely differently and processing it in their brain completely differently. And who wouldn't want to try and understand that? It's, like I said, it's as close as we can get to aliens on planet Earth. That's great. Next question. What part of your research do you enjoy doing the most? It has to be the fieldwork. I just... <laughs> 
as I uh, get more senior in my career, I get to do less and less of it. <laughs> it's uh, the great yeah. tragedy, I think. I know. I hear that all the time. That it's a shame that it crowds out what you what you really love. Well, I try to do as much of it as I can. As a scientist, what was the best moment you've ever had? So I think this would have to be when I did a cultural diffusion experiment looking at spread of innovation in the Great Tid. So I had put two years of preparation into this experiment. And then after that, um, you know, caught and trained all these birds. And I had no idea if it would work. Mm. And I remember so distinctly walking around the forest, checking the puzzle boxes um, a couple of days or, yeah, days after I released the birds and seeing that birds had visited and solved. And not only the birds I trained, but other birds as well. And this was like... A eureka moment for <laughs> you. Mm. It might actually work. <laughs> that, that <was laughs> and that's the great. moment I think that's been the best I can for imagine. me. imagine, <laughs> yeah. What was the worst moment? <sighs> I suppose if I was going to pinpoint one, uh, <laughs> I... Uh, for all my experiments on um, birds, I tend to put out experimental apparatus at night so that the bird, I don't give any cues to the birds of my presence. They might begin to associate me with whatever I'm putting out there, mm. but I know they're not nocturnal, so I can, so I'm safe at night. Um, and it can be very wet and muddy in Whiteham Woods where I've done a lot of my work and I have a distinct memory of carrying arms full of equipment and slipping and just crashing downhill in the middle of the night. Yeah, I think that was my worst moment. I almost gave up. You don't give up. What what gives you confidence? Um, I don't know if I have confidence, but I think probably like all scientists, you have perseverance and um, curiosity that just won't go away. So I've always thought that the best or the what produces results in science is not genius moments. It's just trying again and trying again <laughs> and, and never giving up. But I wouldn't say that as confidence. It's just probably <laughs> stubbornness. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, one that interests me a lot. How can we help people to enjoy science and enjoy a love of science more? So this is something that interests me a lot as well, because I tend to work on these, what I call success stories, birds that are doing very well in a human world. Thank you very much. They're, they're expanding their range and populations living amongst us. And sometimes people ask me, well, why aren't you working on conservation issues? And I think, well, what I'm doing is working on birds that live amongst us. And this is how you connect people to nature. As people become more urbanized, it's those urban birds. It's the great tits in their garden. It's the cockatoos on their balcony that they're experiencing day to day and connecting them to insights into the minds and behavior of those birds is hopefully, at least in my experience, a topic that people find very interesting and they want to know more about. So from my perspective, that's how I engage people in animal behaviour. I bring them to the animals that actually live right next door, you know, not the gorilla in the forest, but the one that's on their bird feeder, and I um, show them that actually those birds 
are fascinating and have fascinating behavior, may well have culture, um, and it's happening right outside your window. That's great. This has been a really fun conversation. You raise so many questions that go beyond the birds outside our window and make me rethink the whole interplay between animals and ourselves. It's a great, great subject, great thing to study. Thank you for coming on and talking about it with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Lucy Applin runs the Cognitive and Cultural Ecology Group at the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior in Radolfzell, Germany. Her team's research on the clever cockatoos of Sydney was published in the July 23rd issue of Science Magazine. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. On the next Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Marcella Soros Santos. She played a major role in building the camera that was used to spot a massive cosmic explosion, the first of its kind ever recorded. These events, they are really violent events. So you can imagine two objects of approximately the size of the mass of the sun being uh, accelerated against each other with um, an incredible, incredible speed. And because of that, the neutral star material cannot hold itself together anymore. And so in the very final moments before the collision, there is a disruption of the neutron star. And that is what creates the fireworks, so to say, that we can observe. Marcella Soros Santos and what this collision of two neutron stars revealed about the expansion of the universe. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>